I think it creates more space for conversations, opportunity. I don't think the movie theater experience is going to die. It's going to look different. Of course it is. This pandemic has rattled everyone's industries, not just the entertainment business. I love when I get the chance to speak to someone who is so passionate about what they do that instead of seeing challenges, they see endless opportunities to create. On today's episode of Latin Equis, I speak to Juan Gil, a young Colombian-Ecuadorian-American film writer and director who already has a lot of projects under his belt. More recently, he wrote and directed Superma, a short film about a struggling single mother who is caught in a moment of peril and unleashes her inner hero to get home safely to her son. I recommend everyone watch this short film. I loved it so much that I reached out to Juan to talk about it. You can find a link to it in the description of this episode. Juan and I will talk about the making of Superma, his creative process, the current landscape of the film industry, and more. Hola, yo soy Andrea Márquez, and this is Ladnikis, a show brought to you by La Red Hispana and the Hispanic Communications Network for the new generation of Ladnex. This season, we want to focus on empowering you to follow your passion and be smart about chasing your dreams while speaking to Latinx from all over, de diferentes colores y sabores. Thank you for all of your support. Our community keeps growing, so make sure to join Latinx on Instagram and TikTok at Latinx. You can also find out more on our website at wearelatinx.com. I think it really started whenever I was a young boy. I was about, oh, 11 years old, 10 or 11 years old. And my cousin, Daniel, who was always the filmmaker, had this little camcorder, this little gray camcorder, looked like a rectangle. He would be the one who would go out of his way to film us doing random scenarios that he would come up with. He would always come, can, you know, contrive everything. He would, you know, all of it was him. Like he would even, you know, go out of his way to like make a DVD menu and like burn the DVD and then show the DVD in front of our family of whatever little short that we made. So it was wonderful at a very young age being exposed to just doing that. And we didn't know what we were doing, but it was fun. And as the years went on, I always just continued to love movies, sort of not knowing that I would do it at all um, or that I even wanted to be an actor. But then I got into high school and I started thinking, well, maybe I could be an actor. Maybe I you know, I entertain my friends a lot. So maybe this means I can entertain audiences. And I, um, I brought the idea to my parents and they shut it down. They were like, an actor? You've never even been on, in, in, in the school Classic. play. You know, you, what do you mean you want to be an actor? And, and they had, you know, they had reason. I, I wasn't in any theater or school plays or anything. Because I was in high school, you're kind of, you don't know who you are. You're kind of blending in and out. Your identity is all over the place. But but I always, always talked about movies with a sense of conviction. I don't know, like a movie critic in some ways. And so I went into college thinking, well, maybe I can like get into like video production, like something tangible, like whether it's news media or being a video journalist or something. And so I went into that and uh, with that mindset into college. And then I just, I really just started making films. Did Daniel keep doing films? 
Daniel did it. He um, he went into uh, into the world of religion and uh, is a man of God now. So I think it, it, he didn't end up making films, but that's okay. He just life just took him in a different direction, and that's fine. You know. Why did you stop acting? Why more directing? Because I thought it was more practical to like have a video camera and like be able to have skills like editing and cutting mm -hmm. and understanding photography and lenses because I could wrap my head around that like oh I could be a photographer in a studio space or I could be a video guy in a department for whatever company I could do I could edit for a video game company if I wanted to like I, I knew those skills I learned those skills and I think subconsciously I was just terrified that like as an actor it's just you it's just your it's just the way you're emoting your life it's just you as an actor are your main tool as a mm -hmm. filmmaker you can be behind the camera and utilize methods of of literature photography sound light and you can and those are all different arenas in this big world that is media so to speak and so i just i don't know i kind of and I also, I just, I was, I was becoming more of a storyteller. I wanted to, I knew what the characters wanted to do and be. I knew what the story was. I had very clear ideas as to what lenses or how are we going to visually communicate whatever story I'm telling. Um, yeah, I just, I just kind of got out of it. I just like, I, I realized that a lot of the work that I was doing as a young boy, young man leading up to now was to be a, a filmmaker, not an actor. And what inspired you to direct Superman? What inspired me? Well, I had just finished um, my first short post-college called Dance With Me, Miha. And that was about a regretful father who shares a night of insightful and hopeful conversation with a prostitute in Los Angeles. And I was dealing with a, a regretful father in that film. In the second film, I really wanted, and that movie in one word was about regret. In this one, I really wanted to showcase bravery. Whenever I start any new project, it starts with one word. That was one bit of advice that was given to me um, by a TV director and also just directors that I look up to, like Francis Ford Coppola. He's like, You're, you should be able to describe your movie in like one or two words. And so Dance With Me, Miha was about regret. Super Demai was gonna be about bravery. And so I just took that and then I said, I want to tell the perspective of, of a female mother character and see what the story's there, given the bravery theme that I want to touch on throughout the entire movie. And then I came across this article um, in Tennessee, this, this civilian named James Shaw Jr. prevented a, a mass shooting from occurring inside of a Waffle House. This crazy guy, I think this happened in like 2017, barges into a Waffle House in Tennessee with an AR-15 and starts shooting people, shooting them dead. And then JR and then and then James Shaw Jr. took it upon himself to grab the barrel of this AR-15 and prevent this madman from shooting and killing any more innocent people. That was a superhero. That was a superhero, a real life superhero. And he later got uh, honored um, under the Obama administration. But um, so a combination of those three things, this idea of bravery, telling it from the mother perspective, and then that article, and then it just kind of coalesced into Superman.
about how you decided because it's both it's bilingual in English and Spanish how you decided about the moments where they were going to be speaking in English versus Spanish in the film hmm. that's a good question so in the film whenever it for example and this was kind of like my case as a young boy too I know how to speak both English and Spanish, but I, I speak English really confidently and like I'm, I'm very, like I can give a full on presentation in English, but in Spanish, though I know how to speak it and understand it completely, it, it, it would, I would struggle a lot more doing so. So there's kind of like this barrier sometimes. Sometimes whenever I was a young boy and like my mom or my father were, was having a really heated conversation and they could feel me in the room behind me or adjacent to them, they would shift to Spanish because then they could let it all out right there. And I probably wouldn't pick up on a lot of it. So I think it was, all, it was a way of dividing me from the reality of what was happening on like a phone call, for example. In the movie, in Superman, it starts off with this mother who's really angry at the father of her child for not stepping up to the plate. And she's, that conversation is in Spanish for a reason because the son is literally in the room right behind them. And she doesn't want little Manny to hear everything that mom is saying to daddy, you know, because they're supposed to be a team, right? But the reality of that scenario in, in a lot of the different households is that it's very, sometimes the, the, the parents are, are clashing, you know, and that's the reality of it. And that was my reality. And so, um, that, so that was my intent to use Spanish in that scenario. Um, Whenever I use, whenever I shift from English to Spanish in any film that I do, and especially in this new one um, that I just finished, it's it's intentional because it's it's whether it's someone who doesn't know how to speak Spanish and now they're shifting to Spanish, that's creating now isolation just between those two characters that are communicating in their native language, right? Or or different scenarios. Um, so yeah, to, so to give you an example in Superman, that's why she she speaks to him in Spanish at the top of the film to sort of try and make sure that Manny, her son, in the other room doesn't think too much of what's going on over the phone between mommy and daddy. I love that. I love that. I hadn't even, it hadn't even occurred to me really. Who, who is your intended audience for this film? It's pretty vast because a lot of people have said that it's a very, it's a very cute sort of family movie. It is, but there are some real, there are some elements of danger in it, some mm -hmm. elements of drama in it too, mm -hmm. that I think gives it that darker shade that then kind of expands it a little bit more than just being family friendly. Um, so the intended audience, I would say, is anyone who just likes a drama, because it does just play out as a drama. So if this one character is going through something and she has to, you know, tap into herself in order to change herself forever, right? So I think, you know, anyone who enjoys drama, but also Anyone who, who does like a family movie, uh, someone who does like warm endings and they're looking for that kind of nice bow tie at the end of a film that kind of resolves everything and kind of gives you a holistic idea of what we just watched. And you talked about how this film is about bravery. What other themes do you think are touched upon that will resonate with audiences as well? I think this idea of appreciation for your parents, especially your mom. That's why I have that little, that poem at the beginning that I wrote. It's like, this is for all the late nights, the late fights and everything in between because moms go through all of that stuff, you know? And um, whenever you see that firsthand, 
it has an impact on you. So I think appreciate your mom and what she does and how she takes care of you and how maybe whenever you don't see it, she's kicking butt, you know, she's being a real superhero and you might not even see it with your own eyes. That's the thing that I like so much about Superman is that uh, her own son doesn't see the heroic act that she goes through, but she went through that, you know, she went through that. And so I think a level of appreciation for your, for your mother, for your parents in general, um, is one thing I'd want people to get to, to take away. And also that ordinary people are extraordinary. You know, they are, they are just, just as interesting as Captain America, you know, um, I think, uh, that's something that I like too. Whenever I read that article, I thought, Oh no, that's, that's a real superhero, not Captain America. Like that's a real superhero. This James Shaw Jr. guy. That, that's wonderful. Can I say one that resonated with me? Sure. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, powerful women. Um, there yeah. because the, there's this scene and they're in a um, como se dice tiendita like a small a bodega. Yeah. Uh -huh, a bodega. Um, like a convenience store for those who don't speak Spanish. But it's three women looking at each other and very intensely while this guy comes in and even though it was the mom who was heading all of this and being the super brave one or whatever, there is a moment of bravery from the other women as well that really got to me. And for me, whoever watches this film, it's it resonates a lot with just the idea of you don't have to be alone in this and sometimes just a motivation to be brave or someone there in the sidelines to kind of root for you is also... I might have read too much into it, but I really, nope. that's one of the things that I connected with the most as well. Yeah, no, you're not wrong. Um, a lot of people, I love that shot. I love mm -hmm. that moment, really, whenever it's unspoken, not a thing is said, but you don't need to say anything at that, at that time. Yeah. You know, like what happened, happened. And now it's just like this, almost this like visual recognition, acknowledging that we just went through this together, like, holy mm -hmm. moly, you know? And so I, yeah, I really like that moment too. I think, yeah, female empowerment in that moment, um, this male figure sort of invading the store and it's the women who had to take care of it. I do like that. I do like that. That was, that was pretty intentional. It was intentional that, um, that uh, they were all women. And it was also intentional to have a pregnant mother in there too, because in some ways it's like almost like a younger reflection of mm -hmm. uh, of the Superman character in the film. You know, she maybe sees herself a little bit in that younger pregnant mother who, you know, it is tricky and difficult to go through. I thought that it was some sort of flashback and the girl we were seeing that was pregnant was the mother. That was the uh, first thing I thought until that's good. You, know, you see it. That's good, yeah, that's a good, I don't think, you're probably one of the first people who who's said that, but that is actually, that was very intentional. Like for someone to think, oh, is that, are we going back in time? You know, is this, is this who she was earlier? But, um, cause they kind of look similar too. So, yeah. yeah. And, and I've seen many films, movies that you go back in time and they don't do this whole like, like it's not an obvious, let's go back in time, camera angle change. Like um, it's very subtle. So I was like, it could be, but and also another thing I'd like to point out is that she didn't have to do anything. They weren't directly pointing a gun at her and yet she decided to step in, which to me was the best part of everything. And yeah. it goes back to the superhero idea, but 
she's risking her life for someone else as well. Thanks, so thanks. such good work. Um, and I have one last question on the film specifically, which okay. is what is the hardest thing? What was the hardest part of shooting this film? I was really nervous, honestly, about um, working with uh, Caleb, who plays the son, the, the kid character, because I'd never worked with a child actor before. And I didn't, you know, I didn't know if it was going to be one of those scenarios where he arrives on set and he's super shy and he can't act and I can't communicate with him as a director to tap into what the scene needs from him. But that was not the case. He, he was so in it. He was asking me very specific questions about the scenario. Like after a take, he'd say, Juan, come here. Did you, did you like that? Do you want me to do it a little bit different and this and that? And like, just, he was wonderful. And, um, and then, and then after that, like I had no problem. That was my biggest, I, I don't even think the little small action sequence that we see in the, in the bodega, like we had a day where we walked through that space and we blocked it out. We had a coordinator. My first AD was there, my DP was there, but so I wasn't worried about that. I was, I was worried that it would maybe come across as not, uh, like maybe goofy or like funny as opposed to dire the way that's supposed to feel like oh my god no this is a scenario you know like even my buddy uh who plays the robber he added a whole intensity to it you know like da, 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 like that created this energy in that cramped bodega space that you could feel and so we used all of that energy into that moment so that kind of worked out I will say that that part did make me very nervous. I was super anxious. I was like, please, nothing bad happened. Please, please, please. Juan's Superma was the first place winner of this year's Voces Nuevas, a short film contest, which is put on by Cine Sony, Sony Pictures Television's movie channel for the bicultural US Latino audience. And the National Association of Latino Independent Producers, known as NALIP. You can watch Superma through the link in the description of this episode on Vimeo. The password is to the rescue. Let us know what you think. It's only six minutes long, but you'll be guaranteed to go through a full range of emotions. This film will especially resonate with Latinos, but it really is for everyone. A love letter to all mothers and all women. To learn more about Juan, you can check him out on Instagram at Juan Gil Productions. What's in store for the future for you? Well, by the end of this month, I will officially be completely done with my third film called Till Dawn. And that was a film that I directed back in April of this year, 2021. Um, and it's gone through about a four and a half month process of post-production and we're now reaching that finish line by the end of August this month. And so I'm, uh, <clears throat> that, this film is really like, as far as short films go, this is what I got as a director. I really, it's, it's bigger, it's, there's more, it's a bigger story, there's more characters, the stakes are a little bit higher. Um, I think the screenplay is doing more things in relation to, you know, what am I, what associations am I making between character and theme and, and, and the visuals that we're seeing. So 
that's what I what I'm excited about. Uh, once once uh, Till Dawn gets finished, so that hopefully it has another successful circuit like Supermod did, and then just trying to find my next project really. And I think there's a couple things. There's two ideas. One of them is a book adaptation that I that I might be doing, and and another one is is an original screenplay by me that I was actually that was actually selected. Uh, from a pool of however many submissions they had at a festival to pitch in front of panelists and a live audience. And so um, I was able to talk about that idea and pitch it. And I did really well. I didn't win the cash prize, but I did really well in pitching it. So I think it's now transitioning into um, feature filmmaking and like what is my feature film debut, still being a young director early in this game. And then also TV directing, which is a space that I've been wanting to get involved in. I've been having a lot of conversations with TV directors. It's just now, you know, there's that moment in your career where you're like, you're waiting and you're waiting and then, boop, all right, now you're in, you know, so I'm just waiting for that waiting, waiting, boop, moment. Uh, the way I, I cope with like being done with any new project is I immediately start working on the next one because it helps me. There is this period, this melancholic period after any artist, I, I believe, finishes some work of art some projects, some endeavor. And whenever they're done with it, there's this feeling of like, ah, now what? You know? And so to avoid that melancholic now what feeling, I've just learned through my years of experience that moving on immediately into the next project is um is therapeutic. Since you're mentioning that you don't know you're right there in the cusp of like TV, film, what? How do you feel about the state of TV slash film right now where, especially because of COVID, how hard movie theaters were hit and that yeah. everything right now is on Disney Plus or Netflix, all of these other pluses that are coming out. How do you feel yeah. about that? My feeling is this, I am going to adapt in whatever way I need to adapt. I'm not gonna be closed-minded. I'm not like that as a director. I'm not like that as as a human, I'd like to say, I'm pretty generally open-minded. So if that means more opportunities for streaming platforms to get your work made, then okay, I can, I can play ball, you know? Do I think the theater exhibition experience should be eliminated completely? No, but nobody wants that. Nobody wants it to go away completely. So I don't, this whole talk of like cinema dying and the movie experience, dying like a number one i think a lot of uh old-timer generation directors are saying that which there's a difference if you're in an older generation you are going to inherently feel like you know things are dying and this and that you see in every generation of any art form number two um i think that it'll maybe just look different the exhibition process of the movies will just look different and be different and that's okay as a species we evolve and so does society so it's it's fine. Um, do I think that the streaming platforms are getting in the way of anything or prohibiting creativity? No, I think they're offering opportunities for even some of the old timers that are having trouble getting financing. You know, I think of the biggest example is Scorsese, whenever he was trying to get his 250 million plus budget for his movie, The Irishman, no one in town would give it to him. But then Netflix was like, you know what? Yeah, well, we'll give it to you. Boom, now the movie exists and the movie's a masterpiece. I saw it four times in theaters. Like that is an example of like, it works. Like there are, or another platform, like let's say um, 
And here's the other exciting thing too, is whenever a new streaming platform opens, it then means they need content. They need product, you know, from whomever, but it needs to be good. And so then if you're in a position like me, who you believe you're doing good work and you're giving good product, then essentially like, Hey, check out my stuff. Let's, you know, it, does it belong on your platform? Can we talk about it? You know, what does it look like? It just, I think it creates more space for conversations, opportunity. I don't think the movie theater experience is going to die. It's going to look different. Of course it is. This pandemic has rattled everyone's industries, not just the entertainment business, um, not just Hollywood. So um, how do I feel about it is I'm being open-minded about it. I embrace technology. I embrace new innovations. I embrace the future. Um, I don't embrace whenever it tries to crumble another institution that already exists and has provided entertainment for you know, decades. I don't, I don't believe in crumbling any sort of institution like that. Um, but I think it, things will just change um, and we'll see how it goes. I definitely cannot imagine not having movie theaters and not having the big screen and everything being at home forever. I cannot. Can you imagine yeah. that experience of getting las palomitas or like the candy, yeah. la coca grande? Yeah. <laughs> said that the best way for you to get from over the loss of a project because it's over is to jump right into the next one yeah how do you even begin how do you get those i hate this like cliche but like creative juices flowing to be yeah, able to yeah, get yeah. into the rhythm of the next one i happen to be a writer slash director um so everything i've ever directed or i've ever done i i personally written and that's okay I've done it out of necessity but it's now gotten to the point where it's so a part of my process that what gets me started is me what I call it is like my ingestion period so if you can imagine me with a bucket right and whenever I'm done with a new project and waiting for the next one to start in in my bucket I'm like throwing in works of literature new music new cinema directors I've never seen before or or I haven't even discovered before. Maybe I travel to Europe and those experiences make it inside that bucket. And this bucket is as I'm reading novels and short stories and watching films and having experiences or heartaches or traumas or whatever, the bucket starts getting full, you know, more full day by day. And then whenever that thing is really heavy, I have to like put it to the side and I'm like, all right, look at all this stuff. How is all this stuff going to crystallize into a new project? Sometimes I have no idea. I don't have control over it. So it happens subconsciously too. But I know that, oh, this is where my head's been because I, I can see all of the stuff that I've been consuming. What has been my, my creative diet, so to speak? What, 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 are, what books have I been reading? What directors have, have I been following? What genre have I been interested in? What kind of music am I, am I really digging right now? And most importantly, to wrap it all up, it's like, how am I feeling? What am I going through, right? What emotions am I going through? And so um, I can say with, this is how it happened in 2020, whenever I was conceiving this idea for my third film, Till Dawn was, I was feeling in one word, rage, 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 rage. And I didn't know what to do with it. Like, what does that even mean? 
rage like of what of what kind you know but it lingered and it lingered and it lingered that permeates into the kind of books i select to read that then permeates into what kind of movies i'm watching tv shows i'm watching what music i'm listening to how am i holding and composing myself in public when i'm talking to people and so and so, it, and so I realized all of that. So I had my bucket, I had my emotion that I was going through. And then that's when I start writing. Then I start writing. I never start just like blank page, like, all right, buddy, what's next? It's never like that. It's never, it's a continuous process of just stuff that's in there, right? Like I, I constantly, like if you could see my desk, like I always have books around me. I'm a big reader. I, I'm a huge I think one of the secret ingredients that a lot of people don't know is to just read, 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 especially in my generation, Gen Z, like we get a bad rep for not reading, for not being sort of like proactive in that department. I, I make it an effort to be proactive in that, part, in that department. And so um, that's how the creative juices start going. You know, that's how they start flowing. And then whenever I have all my bucket stuff, my emotion, my, my one word emotion stuff. Then I start just writing and taking notes. It can just be like a little notepad where I just like scribble stuff. They can make zero sense, no sense at all, but that's okay. That's okay. That's fine. I'll just jot, jot stuff down. I've heard this, this phrase and I use it now. She was, I think, uh, the writer for inside out. Um, and she calls it the blue sky period. Every morning you wake up, and you look up to the skies and it's just a blue sky. It's vast, it's endless. You could literally write about anything in the world, but every just random things will fall down and then you, you just, you jot down those random things, you know, but your brain is doing stuff. Your brain is very powerful and very interesting. It does so many things subconsciously that whenever it does happen, you realize, oh wow, like that thing I read months ago is like, coming back today why who knows but it's in there if and especially if you're a writer like that is in there it, and it will not leave um so i hope that makes sense but that's the creative process i i collect i understand how i'm feeling and then i actually just like write stuff down physically and then i'm like all right I, i've got enough material for a new story i think and then you write it and then you share it and then you start getting responses and then whenever I usually embark on a new film whenever the response is, is, yo, you need to make this, you know? Whenever that becomes the majority consensus of how people are feeling about a screenplay that I write, then it gives me the confidence to be like, all right, I'm, I'll, I guess this is the next one. Curious, who do you show your stuff to? Like, is there a, like, a list of five people here? Like, if these five are on board, then that means it's good. It varies. So whenever I finish a new screenplay, I usually send it to uh, who I think I want to play. No, at that point I know who I want them to play the lead, the lead actor of the film. I'll give it to them and then I'll see what they think. But I do believe in this like, you're writing and you're making stuff for, for like your ideal readers. Stephen King talks about it in his memoir on writing it's a revelation whenever i read that book. i love that yeah yeah i love yeah. that book and he and he talks about your ideal readers you're subconsciously writing for like these five or four or five people and you don't fully know it but you know it 
And so those four or five people have been my buddy, Caleb Daniel, who I've known since college, one of the only people who I've actually co-written stuff with. And he's watched all of my films from my freshman student films to now. So he's been there from the start. He understands my taste. I understand his taste. I, I admire his judgment. I admire the way he sees things whenever I don't see them. So he's one of them. Number two <clears throat> is, is my mentor from college who's a four-time Emmy-winning nonfiction filmmaker, Paul Hunton. He's been my mentor since I was a student in college, has seen all my stuff up until now. He's another ideal reader. Uh, number, number three is usually the actor that I'm thinking of for the lead. And then the other two people are, they vary from project to project, but um, they're usually people that I've shown my work to, you know, from my early, early in my career so that they can fully understand where I'm at. You know, like they understand my sensibility. They understand my filmmaking. They understand um, how I've been making films. They understand cinema. Like they genuinely understand the rhythm of cinema, you know, how to break down a script. And so I, I do have my ideal readers that I send it out to. And then, and then from there, they give you notes, you revisit it, you rework it, you have a new draft and then and then, yeah, at that point, the draft gets better and they reread it. And if at that point it's really good, then, then I start getting serious about, then I send it to, this has been my process twice now. Then I send it to my, my director of photography, J.R. Krause. So I did that with this new script whenever I felt it was pretty good. And then whenever I get, I'm in, then I'm like, all right, we're in. just now making that shift over to this life is it's obsessive it's like you have to be obsessed with your stories so much so that you i mean you can't help but think about it every waking moment and that sounds extreme but it's the way it is it's the way it is it's kind of it's some you have to sacrifice a lot um, I don't want to turn anyone off who's like thinking about it, but it is, but it's so true. And it sometimes wish I, I wish I would have heard how, how obsessed you kind of have to be for this. And I always knew I was, but I just, I guess I didn't know that you could call it obsession, <laughs> but it's, it's a, it's a healthy obsession because if you're an artist, it feeds you, it gives you purpose, right? So if you feel like it's giving you purpose and it's in some way guiding your life, because in some ways, each new film, each new project just helps me navigate my life. Like, oh, that was the film I made whenever I was 22. And oh, I guess this is the film I'm making when I'm 25, you know? And so it's some, in some ways it kind of helps me, it gives me a Northern light too. So what I'll say is if you truly want to be a filmmaker, like you, you have to be obsessed with it. You have to love it so much that that you want it to be a part of you, like literally be a part of you. Um, I think maybe doing it as a hobby to test it out is okay because you need to test it out. You should definitely pick up a camera and shoot stuff and work with actors and read a lot and write something and see if it's even for you. But um, if you can't help, but talk, and sometimes it comes across, there's this wonderful, oh, I have it written somewhere, but there's this quote by Kubrick that's kind of essentially what I tell anyone who wants to be a filmmaker is if you can't help 
your affection towards the craft, like you can't help it, right? Like you're not, like you can't help but be honest about it. Some people are kind of on the fence and phony baloney about it, but there are those where you can't help but exude your conviction and your passion and your interest for film. Then you know, okay, go down this path. But if you, but if you're on the fence about like, yeah, I, I could maybe, you know, do that, that's that, you know, then, then go do that because being a director, a narrative director, a documentary director, um, in this business is hard. It's very hard. So you have to be obsessive about the work because it's a part of you because it fulfills you because it genuinely fulfills you. So if it genuinely fulfills you and makes you happy, and it gives you direction in life and you can't help but be excited or convicted about this thing that's called filmmaking, then you should do it. Then you should do it. But if you don't, then I don't think you should because it's hard and you might be tragically disappointed. Um, and maybe I'm still, maybe I'm delusional. <laughs> maybe I don't know if it's gotten to that place yet because I'm still, you know, learning and doing it. But, um, that's okay too. And I know what quote you're referring to uh, because I have been, someone has quoted that to me before of if you can imagine yourself doing literally anything else, do that other thing. Mm -hmm. um, because it, you do have to be pretty obsessed and the people I've met in this industry are that. They live, yeah. breathe and are happy just living and breathing and dying into this. And it is a very obsessive career. Uh -huh. So I have lightning round questions for you sure. to end with. So favorite <clears throat> book. Oh, favorite book. It's a collection of short stories by Raymond Carver called Where I'm Calling From. Okay. Favorite singer. Favorite singer. Oh, man. That's good. Uh, <laughs> I just have to go with the lyricists and I'm going to say Bob Dylan. Okay. Okay. No, it's good. Um, favorite. <laughs> this is not my audience, maybe, but favorite movie. <laughs> favorite movie. One. Um, ah, man, I got asked this literally earlier today uh, during a meeting. Um, if you ask me any other day, it, it varies. Today, it's Fargo by the Coens. Interesting. Okay. Favorite. Just kidding. That's not one. The first thing you do in the morning. The first thing I do in the morning is I brew coffee. Hidden talent. I am really, really good at Guitar Hero. <laughs> the quality you look for in a business partner. Transparency, transparency or honesty? Honesty, yeah, honesty. Okay. The quality you look for in your friends. Um, Open-mindedness. One thing you wish you knew at the beginning of your career. I know you're still young, but you know what I mean. Yeah, um, to work with the actors and the material first, as opposed to the photography first. That is incredibly specific. I like that. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. One thing I didn't ask you that you wish I would have asked. I feel like I'm critiquing you. <laughs> it's fine. <laughs> um, I mean, I think you've asked me everything. I think I don't, you know, I don't want to. I think you're, maybe you're not going to hurt my feelings if you tell me. 
I think maybe, uh, you know, uh, talking about the new film. That's it, you know, but you watched Supermind, so we uh, talked about this. Yeah. Is there anything else you want to say about Till Dawn? Um, no, I mean, <laughs> that's funny now you, uh, not really. I mean, just the fact that I'm, that I am, you know, proud of it, that I, I think it showcases the most directing that I've done. Like, I'll put it this way. In terms of short films, like, I think that's, I'm, I'm done as far as short films go. Like, I've, you know, I've lost count, especially in college, how many I did, but post-college, um, short film like filmography goes i think till dawn I, I draw the line in terms of okay i have to really this is now the natural progression into just feature films or tv or like you know directing episodic tv now um so that's really it yeah i just want to talk about the, i just wanted to talk about the fact that till dawn uh, hopefully people can be moved by the story just the way like they were moved to superman but it is different um and so i don't hopefully whenever they watch it, they realize like, oh, not only can the filmmaker do what they did in Supermop, but they can do this, you know? So hopefully that's, that's the feeling and the sentiment that Till Dawn receives. Hey guys, thanks for listening to this episode with Juan. I encourage you to watch Superma available through the link in the description of this episode on Vimeo. The password is to the rescue. You can follow Juan at Juan Gil Productions on Instagram. Remember to support Latin Aikis by rating this podcast on Apple Podcasts. As you know, this will help us continue to work on the show and bring on guests who inspire and motivate you. This is Latin Aikis. I'm your host, Andrea Marquez. Thank you for listening. <laughs>